Hey, thanks for joining us here at the Vineyard Church Podcast. For more video messages and content, make sure to visit our website, vineyardwheeling.com, or download our app. There's a lot of great resources there that are free and will help you grow closer to God and help you connect with the church. Right now, let's go to our lead pastor, Chris Figueretti, for this week's message. Well, welcome everybody to our new series, Fearless. I'm so excited for this series because I think it's going to speak to where we're living as a culture and where a lot of us as individuals are living as well. There's a lot of fear in the world right now, isn't there? I mean, life is scary anyway, and the, the pace of change over the last 10 years has been breathtaking and unsettling and all of that. But it seems like over the last two years or so, somebody has grabbed the knob on the fear machine and turned it up to 11. I mean, it is just, there's so much going on that just stokes and provokes and gets us full of anxiety and fear. I, uh, Axios did a poll right at the end of, of 2021, and in their poll, they found that more than half of adults in the United States are fearful for what is to come in 2022. Like more than half of us are, are scared of what's next. A little PTSD because we survived 2020 and we're like, what's 2021 going to look like in 2021? And then what's 2020? It's, it's scary times. I went and looked at the headlines from the last, uh, the last week or so. And uh, I didn't even, I mean, I wasn't even like fishing for headlines. I just started reading headlines. Here's some of them just to give you a sense of this isn't going back like months and months. This is going back a week or two. This is, this is the news that we're dealing with on a daily basis. U.S. COVID death toll passes 900,000 as experts fear 1 million fatalities by April. Ukraine-Russia crisis, what to know about the rising fear of war. Tell us, how would you feel about your children, your young children, receiving two shots of the Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine? I love this one. Propaganda and fear turns people into bugs. Town Hall. Yes, that's, that was an actual, actual article. Uh, the pandemic of fear, fear and loathing in Ottawa as more protests loom. Scary times in Canada. Uh, COVID, fear, and demons. That was another, another article, uh, just on the news sites. Um, new year, new reasons to live in fear. COVID-19 vaccines may impact women's menstrual cycles, study says. Hellboy actor Ron Perlman says it's time for the blue states to separate from the red states. And we've had this kind of percolating sense of a divide in our country kind of and, and talk of civil war and all of that. And this, is, this just shows up in the news on a regular basis. I love this one. Tech stocks lose billions in value as Apple moves to secure user data. Well, I'm glad Apple's finally moving to secure user data, but that does not make me feel secure. Um, the markets are, are, are uh, volatile at this point, basically is what that's saying. 9,000 Americans remain stranded in Afghanistan, according to a new Senate report. Of course, we were told that there were 100 or less, so who do you believe? What do, what do you believe? Uh, survey, seven in 10 Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. There's a financial crisis. The USA, USA on the road to 1950s style unemployment. Your iPhone has been tracking the way you walk. It's not all it's been tracking, but it has been tracking that. Russia could seize Kiev in days and cause 50,000 civilian deaths in the Ukraine. Both sides of the Taiwan Strait are closely watching the crisis. 
because depending on what happens there will we'll really determine what happens in Taiwan. War all around us, or looming anyway. Long COVID, mass disability event. Loose smell forever. Vermont plans to enshrine legal abortions right up to birth. Former McDonald's CEO says inflation is driving every U.S. restaurant absolutely crazy. The Commerce Secretary says no quick fix to resolve the semiconductor shortage, which means supply chain issues everywhere. And Coca-Cola is quiet on China's Uyghur genocide after criticizing Georgia election laws. And we poke and we prod and one side pokes the other and everything is to be feared. And guys, this is the world that we live in. This is the world that we live in. And so many of us are wrestling with fear. And yet over and over again, the Bible says, fear not. God to his people in the Old Testament, don't fear, I'm with you. Don't fear, I'm with you. Don't fear, I'm with you. Jesus, we just went over this last week in addressing his disciples. It's like, I will go before you. I am in you, I am with you. You will be okay. Do not be afraid. And God has not given us a spirit of fear. His spirit lives inside of us. If you're a follower of Jesus and his spirit has come to live in your heart, we don't have a spirit of fear. There is a spiritual anchor that defies fear. But the question that so many people have in this day, in this age, when there are so many things that are provoking our fears and anxieties, is how do you tap into that? How do you live that out in a practical way? Now, in the weeks ahead, we're going to look at different aspects of fear and, and how to manage it and how to live faithfully in the midst of, of fearful times. But this week, what I want to look at specifically is, is how, do you, how do you do that when it feels like the world around you is going to hell in a handbasket? Because I've heard that more than once. I've, this week, I've heard that more than once. The world's coming apart. The world's going to hell in a handbasket. How do you live faithfully? How do you live with less fear or fear less in the midst of that? How do you not just live in that? How do you not just get up in the morning and get out of bed and go to work in that? But how do you thrive when the world's coming apart? And to, to help instruct us in this, we're going to look at the story of Daniel. We're going to back, back up uh, to the year around 560 BC. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Daniel chapter 1. If you have a device, you can just click on Daniel chapter 1. If you have a paper Bible, open it up. There's a, there is an index in the back. Find Daniel. Go to that page. We're starting verse 1, chapter 1. The story of Daniel is inspiring. Daniel, uh, a fascinating character. He, um, he was living, uh, he was a young man, uh, late teens, living in Jerusalem uh, when a king and a kingdom from far away showed up at the gates and turned everything on its head and created a situation for Daniel that would have spiked fear beyond, I think, what most of us could imagine. So we're going to start in verse 1, and it says this, In the, the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. So the Babylonians are hundreds of miles away. King Nebuchadnezzar is a very powerful king. He's an evil, wicked king, a cult follower and all these other things. And he is just taking out kingdom after kingdom. And he gets to Judah 
and he takes Judah out. Now, you're like, what's Judah? Judah, uh, Israel uh, was a kingdom, uh, and their first king was King Saul, then King David, King Solomon. King Solomon had a son, Rehoboam, and Rehoboam was was not a very good leader, and the country split in two. And so you had the northern kingdom that they called Israel and the southern kingdom that they called Judah. And Judah actually did a little bit better job of following God over the years, but they didn't do that great a job. And that's the problem that's going on right here. Judah is not following God. Now, this includes the city of Jerusalem. That would have been the territory of Judah. And Nebuchadnezzar shows up and he kicks rear end. In verse two, it says, and the Lord delivered Jericho, king of Judah, into his hand. Underline that. If you have a paper Bible or if you're highlighting, highlight that. The Lord delivered Jacob, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put it put in the treasure house of his God. So not only does, does, does um, Nebuchadnezzar show up and, and have victory over uh, Judah and the people of God, but he takes God's stuff, implements of worship from the temple, and he takes them back to his demon God's temple, and he puts them on display to kind of mock them and show that his God's more powerful than all the other gods. And God, it says God allowed this. God handed, handed the nation over to the Babylonians. In verse 3, it says, then the king ordered Ash." Penas, Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. This would not have been an uncommon practice. The king, as he conquers these other kingdoms, is grabbing the cream of the crop, the smartest of the smart, the best of the best, to work in his kingdom. And he's going to bring them back to Babylon, and he's going to put them in a re-education camp at the palace where they're going to unlearn what they've learned, what they, they knew from their previous culture, and they're going to learn what it means to be a Babylonian. And then after a period of time, they will come into service for the king. A young man without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them language and literature. In other words, he was going to teach them the Babylonian religion, which was the occult and astrology, and the Babylonian culture, which grew out of that. In verse 5, it says, the king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, he gave the name Belshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, he gave the name Meshach, and to Azariah, he gave the name Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. This is an interesting little phrase. He doesn't want to defile himself. Daniel is clearly committed to following God. 
And although Judah was not doing a great job of following God, Daniel clearly was committed to following God. And God had given the people, the Jewish people, a law, a a dietary law. There were certain things they were to eat and not eat. Um, The food had to be prepared a certain way. And this was kind of a, this was a, a, a red line for Daniel. He wasn't, he didn't want to cross this line. And so he asked for permission to not have to eat that food. Now, God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my Lord, the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Well, Daniel then said to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, so Daniel is not taking no for an answer. He's just going down the food chain to the guy who's watching him directly. And he's like, let's do a little experiment. And and so uh, he says, please test your servants for 10 days, just 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. And then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. Well, at the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. Now, a lot of times people will take this and go, see, God wants us to be vegetarians, but that's not the point of this. Daniel and his his friends were, were saying, we'll just eat vegetables so we don't violate God's law. And God obviously blessed them in that. Um, to these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. Now, this is interesting because the literature and learning that they're doing is on occult practices in astrology. Like they learned, now they didn't adopt the occult practices and the astrology, but they knew it better than the people who did by the end of this. And God gave them knowledge and understanding in that. And it says, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. Again, this has nothing to do with the occult practices in the astrology. This is an enablement that God had given Daniel and it plays out in the rest of the story. I encourage you to read the book of Daniel this week if you get a chance. Verse 18, it says, at the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, so at the end of the three years, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service in a matter, in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. So they went to Hogwarts people. They went to enchanters and magicians school. They learned those things better than anybody else. They didn't practice them, but they, they knew the material and had wisdom well beyond all the king's other advisors who all were magicians and enchanters because this was an occult culture. And it says, and Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. As the story goes on, Daniel rises to the heights of leadership in Babylon. And for 70 years, Years there, he leads, he advises the kings. He is, he has a valued part 
of the process, and he is blooming where he is planted. He leads national revivals, and the whole time he maintains his faith and his integrity with God. Can you imagine? Now, here's what I want you to do. Close your eyes for a minute, and I want you to picture the most frightening circumstance you can possibly imagine. For some of you, there's snakes involved. Others have clowns. I don't know what it is for you. Whatever is the most frightening circumstance that you can possibly imagine, and it, whatever it is, it dwarfs. It's, it, it pales to, in this situation. And you think about, you can open your eyes, think about what Daniel has, has just gone through. Like, put yourself in his shoes for a moment. His, his country is invaded, obliterated, and conquered. His family is probably dead at this point. They grabbed him because he was young and, and they could re-educate him, they thought. The world he knew has been turned completely on its head. His freedom has been lost. His family has been killed. He has been kidnapped and taken hundreds of miles away to a completely different culture, and he'll probably never go back home again. He's been castrated. I know we didn't read that in there, but that's what would have happened. To see the king in this situation had a harem full of the most beautiful women in the world that lived in his castle with him, and he wasn't sharing. So they had to take care of that problem before all these handsome, strong, smart young men came into the palace. They changed his name. Now, his name, Daniel, meant God is my judge. The name they gave him, Belshazzar, means Baal's prince. He's Baal's boy. Baal was one of the demonic gods that they worshipped. He's, he's Baal's boy. He's forced to study the occult and astrology, which, you know, was, was not pleasing to God. He was forced to, to serve an evil king. And Babylon was wretched. It was so wicked. In fact, the Bible uses Babylon as a metaphor for evil. How bad is it? It's Babylon bad. Read Revelations chapter 18. Guys, nothing we're facing today even comes close. Nothing comes close to what Daniel was facing. It, it, Daniel should have been in a heap and on the floor unable to get up in the morning, paralyzed with fear. Everything has been taken from him. And he is in this hostile environment. And yet he is able to get up in the morning. He is able to move on. He is able to stay faithful to God. He is able to thrive in the midst of it. There's a lot to learn from Daniel. And so the question that I want to wrestle with today is, is just simply this, what enabled Daniel to thrive in the midst of a terrifying situation? And I, I have four things that uh, I wanna unpack. Well, the first one is this, Daniel, Daniel knew that God was in control of who is in control. Daniel knew that God is in control of who is in control. You know, a little over a year ago, we had an election and a third of the country lost their mind because their person lost. This is terrifying. I mean, everything's gonna come unglued because of that. Of course, four years before that, a third of the country lost their minds because their side lost. 
But in the end, God knows, God directs, God places the authorities in place, good, bad, and otherwise. God is in control of who is in control. And when you know this, and you got it deep in here and through this thick thing up here, you live differently. Romans 13, 1, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Now, please hear me. This does not mean in a participatory republic like we live in that we just sit down and shut up. It doesn't mean that we don't speak out against injustice and stand up for what is right. I believe we should. But it does mean that we don't get wrapped around the axle when our side loses. Like, it, it, it's not the end of the world. God is in charge of who is in charge. Now, I know what some of you are, are thinking, but, 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 but what about when evil people end up in charge? I mean, is God allowing that to happen? Does God make that happen? And, and uh, yeah, I mean, God will use the short-term success of the wicked as part of his plan. He will. I mean, who does it say at the beginning of, of Daniel 1, who does it say handed Judah over to Babylon? God. Now, I don't think that would have happened if the, the people of Judah had been living for God if they had been worshiping him and him alone, if they had been following his laws and commandments, I don't, I don't think God would have done that. I think this is, a, this is the way that God, and we see this throughout the Old Testament, God will allow his people when they go astray to be overcome by invading countries that are not God followers to get their attention and bring them back to him. It's it's form of correction. I think God loves us so much. He loves his kids so much that he will allow pain enough in our lives if that's what it takes to turn us around. And sometimes we look around and it seems like wickedness is thriving and God will allow that pain sometimes to get our attention so that we will repent and come home and come back to him. But when you can step back from all of that, whether that's going on in your time or a previous time, and you can remember that God is in control of who is in control, that God is on the throne, it changes everything inside of you as far as the fear level is concerned. Because it's not up to you. It's up to him. Sometimes I think we take so much on ourselves and we feel like we have to be in control. We're not. God is in control of who is in control. And there's great peace that comes once you get that settled in your heart. The second thing that Daniel knew was that, that he knew in the end we win. He knew that in the end we win. He, he lived differently. He lived with this holy optimism. And optimism, I think sometimes we think optimism is kind of like you think, well, everything is awesome, right? You know, no matter what bad things are going on, everything is awesome and you're just kind of blind to, that's not optimism, that's stupid. That's the Lego movie. And sometimes it feels like we're living in the Lego movie, go watch it. But optimism, biblical 
optimism is a biblical perspective that God is in control. He's in control of whatever situation we're, we're facing. He is still God. And in the end, we win. And when you know that you win in the end, you live differently. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus has his disciples gathered around him, and he's like, look, here's the deal. We're going to build this thing called the church. It's, a, it's my gathering. It's my movement. We're going to gather people from all over the world. And, and as we do, not even the gates of hell will be able to stand against it. It reads this way, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now, we read that and we, we read about the, you know, hell overcoming us and we think, oh, we're on the defense and hell is on the offense. And, and, but that's not what Jesus is laying out there. Gates are not an offensive weapon. You don't pick up gates and go beat somebody with them. Gates are defensive. Hell is on the defense. And what Jesus is saying is hell can't stand against the church. Like we win. There'll be, and he warned us, there'll be difficult times. There'll be moments when it won't look like you're winning, but you win. Live like it. Live like it. We don't hunker down in the basement of the church hoping to survive the cultural changes that are coming our way. No. We win in the end. And when you know you win in the end, you live differently in the moment. If you can get this through your heart, through your head, it changes the way you navigate the now. Even when circumstances seem bleak, we win. I think the third thing that Daniel did so well that made, was a game changer for him is that Daniel chose humility. He chose humility. Now, again, I think there's a great misunderstanding about what humility is. We think humility is thinking badly of ourselves. Remember, Daniel's the guy who wrote that they picked the smartest, most good-looking, most wise, most capable about himself. So, I mean, I don't think that he had a self-image issue. That's not the humility I'm talking about. The humility I'm talking about, I think biblical humility, is treating others with respect, even when they're your enemy, even when they're God's enemy. You know, and, and I think this is the secret sauce to, to Daniel's success. This is, this is how Daniel rises to this, this level of influence in this kingdom that he is a foreigner and a stranger in. He responds to Nebuchadnezzar with respect. Now, it would have been easy for Daniel to become angry and bitter and lash out, and every time he went to the bathroom, he would be angry about what this king has done to him. But he chooses to treat Nebuchadnezzar with respect, and he rises to the highest positions of influence and power in the kingdom. I've got a news flash for you. I tell my kids this all the time. My wife tells my kids this all the time. You get what you give. The Bible puts it this way, you, you reap what you sow. But if you treat people with respect, you will receive respect and favor. If you treat people with contempt, you will be opposed. You disrespect people, they're going to oppose you. Do they deserve the respect? Probably not. Maybe not. Definitely not. I don't know. 
but we choose to treat people with respect. So I know some of you are thinking, well, so Chris, are you saying we just, we just pretend and suck up to people and to kind of schmooze and get what we want and be fake all the time? And I know, I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying just show people the respect that you would want them to show you, even if they're enemies. You know, Jesus, this is right out of Jesus's playbook in Matthew 7, verse 12. He says this, so in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. Do to others what you would have them do to you. Not what they've done to you, not what they deserve, but treat them, if you want respect, and we all want to be respected, treat people with respect. And then he goes on, he says, for this sums up the law and the prophets. Now, he said this about loving God and loving other people, too, sums up the law and the prophets. And, and what he's saying is we're just getting down to the core of what this faith relationship with God religion thing is all about. We're getting, we're getting at the core of it. Do to others what you would have them do to you. The apostle Paul, in writing to his, uh, his young mentee, uh, Timothy, in 2 Timothy 2, 24, he puts it this way. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach and not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth and that they will come to their senses and escape the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Guys, it can seem like, and I know there are Christians out there in the marketplace today that, that this is their MO, to, it, to, to beat our chests and attack the people around us and tear down unrighteousness wherever it is. But it's humility and kindness that will win the day. Do to others as you would have them do to you, not as they have done to you. And guys, this is the genius of Daniel. The doors that will open for him, the opportunities that will present themselves, they backs into this. Instead of protesting that he had to learn astrology, he graduated at the top of his class. He knew their arguments better than they knew their arguments. And he could speak truth into the situation with grace. And God used him in powerful, powerful ways. Guys, it's tempting in times that are scary to just, and the world's going to hell in a handbasket, to, to just kind of run away and isolate. You just want to become Amish. I can't tell you how many times I've said that, although I don't think I would have a very nice beard. So, sorry, Matt. But uh, at any rate, Christians are not called to isolate ourselves. We're, not call, we're called to infiltrate, not isolate. Learn Learn their arguments better than they know, and then ask questions. Choose humility. Fourth thing that Daniel does is Daniel picked his battles wisely. He picked his battles wisely. Look, look at me. I want to speak specifically to those of us who have a warrior's heart, right? Somebody does you wrong or your family wrong or says something bad about your mama on a water tower with spray paint or anything, you're, I mean, it's on, we're going. Like, you got to correct error. You got to fight for what's right. I love your heart. I love your heart. 
But not every battle is your battle to fight. Guys, this is a wisdom that Daniel understood. He picked his battles wisely. He was not afraid to make a stand. At one point, the, the king's tricked into passing a law that says that nobody's allowed to pray to anybody but the king, and uh, Daniel refuses and ends up in a lion's den because of it. Another story, read the book. He, he at the beginning of the story where he, he's like, I'm not going to eat this food, so let's figure out, you know, he very gently but figures out a way to make a stand on the dietary law, but he doesn't protest the curriculum. He doesn't protest the awful, offensive name change that he got because he wasn't looking to pick a fight. And he knew the difference between what bugged him and what God had forbidden. And he made his stand on what God had forbidden, not on everything. You know, this is, I've heard this story over and over again where companies are bringing in people to do trainings and they'll, they'll train you on trying to teach everybody to get along, but part of that is they'll, they'll te they're teaching that you're a racist because of the color of your skin. And as I've talked with people who've sat through these trainings, they're a little mad. Like, that's not true. I'm not. And, they, and it would be very tempting, and I think a lot of people were very tempted to stand up and scream, that's not true. That's not who we are. That's not how it is. And that may be your battle to fight. It may not be your battle to fight. That's going to be between you and God. But it's tempting to stand up and scream. Pick your battles wisely. Not everything that bugs you is a moral line for God. Save your ammunition for the things that count. Don't ever compromise on God's standard. But the reality of life and the wisdom of life is that there's a lot in life that you'll need to compromise on. Life is a lot about compromise. If you've been married and stayed married, you know this. Doesn't mean you believe everything or accept everything. You just don't go to war over everything. You ask respect, respectful, thoughtful questions. You show respect honor and humility. And then maybe you can deconstruct whatever is in error from the inside rather than throwing hand grenades over the wall, which doesn't solve anything. That's good advice for marriage. <laughs> it's good advice for life. Guys, our world is a scary place. Our news is a source of anxiety for many of us. But if you, like Daniel, can remember that God is in control of who is in control, if you can remember and get it deep into your heart that in the end, you win. You don't have to cower in fear. You win even if it looks like at the moment you're not winning. If you can remember to choose humility and to pick your battles wisely, I think you can get up in the morning, you can get out the door, and you can thrive in a world that seems topsy-turvy and upside down. Guys, this is the roadmap to peace in the storm, victory in the end, and to overcoming your fears. And Daniel, Daniel goes on to impact the world for thousands of years to come.
He goes on to, to, to influence this king and the next king. He leads national revivals and he's used powerfully by God. And in the end, that moment that he lived in, in Babylon, Babylon is just a footnote in history. It's just a footnote. God knows what he's doing. He's in control of who's in control. And he knows and has told us that we win. So fear not, my friends. Let's pray. God, thank you that you are in control of who's in control. Thank you, Lord, that we do win. Thank you, God, that you have instructed us and taught us how to navigate with grace. Even the most unjust, terrifying times and to come out on top. And Lord, I pray that you would help these things sink deep into our lives this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for joining us here at The Vineyard. It's our greatest desire to see you find and follow God, and we hope that this podcast has helped you do just that. For more video messages and content, make sure to visit our website, vineyardwheeling.com, or download our app. Again, thanks for joining us this week. We'll see you next time.